Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. doing Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available for Monday the 16th of November with me Daniel Ruiz Tyson episode 288 hope you're all healthy keeping on doing what you need to be doing to keep yourself going just getting closer to the screen hope you're doing a bit more than uh, hanging on just trying to see the screen you might already be thinking what's this guy moaning about now He's gone up three spots this week in the Spanish Apple podcast charts. He's now 172nd. How about that? Why doesn't he focus on that? Now, that may be true, but it's not enough. Think about your life since March. Think about how you've got through those eight months, who you've isolated with, and think about if you've been fortunate enough to have had people in your life to get through this together with. Now, for a moment, just to raise those people. From the last eight months, okay, just erase them. They've been in your life, now they're gone. So just focus on that for a minute. Just want to see if you can empathize and get your head around that. Think about how you might have fared these last eight months alone, because I've heard that from a few people. What are you complaining about? I'd love to have all that time on my own. Listen, if you're a long-time listener, you know I'm not a people person. That hasn't changed, but neither am I a pandemic person. That's the thing. This pandemic, especially this winter chunk of this seemingly never-ending story, this is done or is doing something to me that is causing me to unravel, I think. I wish I could say that I'm able to deal with it through creative endeavors, but the truth is I'm being squeezed so hard right now that I'm not able to find that time I need. It's 21.31 hours now, Monday evening. I've been going at it for 14 hours now today and I'm only getting around to doing the show and I'm just not able to find that time I need, that space I need to get through this. You know, I'm so far behind on the new football show, for instance, I haven't even opened a single box of what I've bought. That big outlay in the last couple of weeks, I haven't found the strength, never mind the time, but the strength to open everything and try and learn how to use it because it's something that I don't enjoy doing. Never been one to enjoy getting to grips with stuff. You know, I'm not a gadget guy. Creative, yes. Gadgets, no. Right now, I just can't hold a thought for toffee. And I'm not being allowed to hold a thought for toffee. The running is the only thing that takes the edge of what I'm feeling. All those years when I've done this show, all the years that I've done this show, when I've revisited the bereavements frequently, I suppose, you know, which can be tiring for some of you. I hear other presenters say the same. They talk about their bereavements. It's just something that you talk about because they mark you. You know, you carry those things with you. But I'll say this. When I suffered those bereavements, I knew why I felt low. I knew that, well, not initially, I suppose, even though that sounds very obvious. It's something that I came to understand with time. 
And after more than one bereavement, you realize that how you're feeling is normal. That's the grieving process. And, you know, you, you've got that experience. By the time I got to the umpteenth bereavement, I understood that in those situations, you need time. You need to keep busy. You need to appreciate that what you're feeling is normal. There's nothing wrong with you except that you've lost someone. For me, when I found myself feeling like this without being able to connect it to a bereavement, that's when I worry. That's when I think this is what I first felt when I was six years old on a Friday evening when I'd be overwhelmed by melancholy because I wouldn't be at school over the weekend. This is that feeling. I'd like to add that by the time I was 13, that specific feeling about missing school at weekends, that had definitely passed by that age, by 14, I'd say, I was barely in school. Incredible to have gone to a school that because it was closing down, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. In my case, that usually meant jumping on a 137 bus from Battersea to Clapham, buying the latest five-star record and making sure I just showed my face in two classes, French and history, because those were overseen by my form tutor, and uh, year master. Any other class, I did pretty much what I wanted. That character that, I've forgotten her name now, I would have known her name for years because she was around for years, the girl that played Michelle Fowler in EastEnders, who really used to annoy me because of the amount of times that she'd be having breakfast in EastEnders and she'd be talking with her mouth full. I'd be thinking, well, that's not something that she's given to the character. That's just something that she probably does in real life and has carried over into the show. And it always annoyed me. But before she played Michelle Fowler, she played Suzanne Ross in Grainshill, who was this very sullen girl. I think she was in the second intake, the second cast that came into Grainshill around 1980 after Tucker's Lot. And she was always bunk in school. And that was me. I was Suzanne Ross of Clapham College. As an adult, the first time I experienced this, whatever it is that I'm going through again, and that it wasn't related to a bereavement, that was 2013. I was living in that sublet in Peckham. Horrible area. Now, I'm sure that there are nice parts of Peckham now, gentrified areas of Peckham now. I don't doubt that at all. This was in the horrible part of Peckham. Purpose-built flat, though, lovely and quiet, this show had already launched by then. The weekends were dreadful, particularly Saturday mornings for some reason, specifically Saturday mornings. Now, why would that be? And I remember being quite taken aback by that because I didn't understand where that was coming from. And that's what I've got now. I'm fighting so hard to stay afloat. I'm fighting so hard to keep a roof over my head in a place that I don't want to be in, a place that mentally holds me back and I'm under huge pressure on a number of fronts. Just being under pressure on one of those things would be enough to be dealing with, but it's maybe four or five big things. The two outlets are the creativity, which is always the first to fall away when life pushes me face down onto that pillow again, and the running. The worse I feel, the better I run. I have noticed that similar case tonight. Wish it wasn't. So, but I suppose, you know, it's not a, uh, maybe it's not a bad thing. I don't know. I think the trigger for me, the last few days, it was Friday. As expected, if you're a bit superstitious as I am, the Friday 13th thing, though I think, as I said on the patron show last week, being of uh, Spanish blood out there, it's Tuesday the 13th. So I don't know if the whole Friday 13th thing actually works. 
I don't know where I'm going with that. What I'm saying is I was a bit paranoid. It was Friday the 13th. I'd been aware that it was coming since the summer. And there was an email correspondence that arrived in the early afternoon. I was heading towards uh, Battersea to pick up another book that I've reserved. I mean, the library books thing, that is an OCD. I think, well, it's something. It's, uh, it's got out of control again. And this email correspondence related to my standoff with the building owners about uh, my refusing to having the work done and seeing the string of emails on my phone showing what the neighbours were saying about them being penalised financially because of my stance. I could understand where they're coming from because you've got to protect your own interests and it's very clever on the part of the building managers, very obvious as well to go for these people where it's going to hit them, which is in the pocket, and to go for the landlord here, again, where it's going to hit them in the pocket, which means I get pushed into the corner, and it's likely that the stance that I've put up is going to be nothing more than a last stand, really, and that I am going to have to bend over and have this work go through. And just, I think, since reading those emails, my mood has just collapsed. And it goes back to the fact that the workmen, the building company that boldly spoke of creating a COVID safe environment, they've not done that at all. They've broken so many of the rules that they said that they would implement. They have just broken so many of them. And of course, as outlined in last Thursday's show, there was the builder last week that came and surprised me, stunned me and got my hand, took my hand, a handshake, first handshake of the pandemic era. I washed my hand, as I said on the Patreon show, for about 30 minutes. These are the people that you're meant to trust to come in and do your work in a safe environment. It's hit me really hard. Saturday was dreadful. I would say that Saturday was probably in the worst four or five days that I've had in the last couple of years. And, you know, the other three or four were really bad. And I think Saturday was probably just below those. But it was certainly there. They've always been sloth Saturdays, even though I've got the calzone pizza conversion in the evening. Saturdays, I can be very vulnerable. When you're on your own, I think the weekends, that's the point of attack. That's when the melancholy comes. Man, I miss the cafe. I was thinking about that today, especially the late noughties era when I used to just pull some long stretches of writing there. I could be there three or four hours, particularly Saturday mornings. I'd leave the space daddies when I was living across the road from the cafe. Typically of me, when I live about 10 seconds from the cafe in the alleyway, tucked in just behind the cafe, I very rarely went there because I was paying a fortune to live by the cafe. When I lived across the road from the cafe at the Space Daddies, Saturday mornings, that was the big, exciting cafe shift for me. I'd get up really early because I knew Saturday mornings were busy and there I'd Go in there for about 0800 hours, 0830 hours, get my toilet table and have my guardian with me. You know, back in the days when it was affordable, I'd have my laptop. I'd start by reading the guardian and have my breakfast and then I'd start writing and I could just shut everything off. And that was my special day. And I can't see that coming back, if ever, really. I just don't see how the cafe survives this. It could be of course, the, the residual effect of the old meds that my GP told me would disappear, that that residual effect has now dissipated and some dealing with just the new meds now. They're not quite agreeing with me. thought I might have a week or two longer benefiting from that carryover, that overlap 
if it is that, and I'm just uh, theorising here, if it is that, surely I certainly shouldn't be feeling worse. I think the trigger was the email on Friday. I think I was doing okay, and that has just left me very flat. I was editing something for someone today, and there was a line in there from one of the guests on their show And they said, people don't care about the sunrise until they see the sunset. You need to take them on a journey. You know, I can't stand that whole journey business. We're not all on a journey. Not all of us lead interesting lives. I certainly don't believe I'm on a journey. And they continued, they need to see the struggle before they see the victory. This was relating to PR. This client was a PR client. And I was listening to that. I was trying to make sense of it. And I just thought to myself that... Anyone who's been listening to this particular show for a few years, I think you're probably almost as eager as I am to see the sunrise. You know, screw the struggle. I've done that. I'm still doing it. It's been going on for a long time. You know, let's see the sunrise. There is a strain of suicides on the maternal side. Suicide, there's drinking and baldness. I'm teetotal. That's coming up to 10 years. So that's not a concern. Doing okay on the other two. Back in the 80s, one cousin in Spain got it really wrong. He was already a drinker, but he tried to top himself with pills. I was just a boy, but I remember hearing about it. He's still around. He survived, but he ended up blind as a result of his attempt, which I suppose meant that he didn't get to see himself go bald, though, because the last time I saw him in 98, he'd definitely gone bald. He was still drinking back then, too. There is, of course, that mystery with my maternal grandfather. You know, there are two schools of thought within the family. One was that he topped himself, which is what my aunt has always uh, believed. And there is another school of thought, which is what I was... It's the story that I grew up with, was that he was murdered by Franco's uh, death squads, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War. So... Let's say we go with that being a suicide, my grandfather's mysterious death. Let's say that was a suicide. You know, so there, there is a strain in the family. There is something there. And suicide may well be looking at me thinking, this guy's still around. What's going on here? They might ring their boss at Suicide Central. What's this guy hanging around for? Apparently he reckons he can still turn things around. That might be what head office tell Mr. Suicide, leave him be. Let's wait this out. Let's see what happens. The suicide strain might pull a facial, the kind of face that's always been beyond me. I've said it before. One, I don't have them kind of thoughts. But if I did, it's a good job I'm in one of those flats with ridiculously high ceilings. There's no overhead lighting, hence the wrecked vision. There's no ceiling fixtures. Also, there's all the work to consider. 30 years worth of notebooks full of ideas, many of which went into scripts, none of which pulled me out of the ever-deepening hole. I couldn't leave those notebooks behind. If you were feeling the wrong side of melancholy in Victorian times, you'd have had a fireplace. You could just burn stuff. You wouldn't have to leave anything behind. No notes. These days, you'd need a shredder. I've had one before. Budget ended things, of course, anything over 10 or so pages. Those things are jamming. Plus, you're living in a flat. Neighbours might well complain about the shredding audio. It would be a very lengthy process to shred 30 years worth of notebooks. You know, in the early years, there'd be loads of notebooks because, you know, I was starting out as a writer. I was very young. I just thought you'd have to write every single thought down. 
And then gradually you begin maturing as a writer and you begin to grasp what is worth writing down, what has legs, what ideas have legs. And so you're a bit more choosy about your ideas. And then you go through the recession and you find the back of your notebook suddenly have shopping lists for your visits to German budget supermarkets. It's going to be a very lengthy process getting rid of all those notebooks just using a shredder. By the time you finish, you might have changed your mind. Suddenly you're looking at living the rest of your life without a lot of your work. I don't know if I could do that. If there was a way around the notebooks conundrum, like they could be, let's say, magicked away. And let's say there is reincarnation. So if on reincarnation, I were to come back as a writer, those notebooks would then be given to me once I'm old enough to take them on board and add to them in my next life. The advice coming back to me might be it's less Oxbridge these days, television. You stand more of a chance of getting in there and staying in there this time. More about the work these days than who you know. If they could guarantee the notebooks get carried over until the time is right for me to come back, and if they can guarantee that I can come back to a warm flat, I mean, that is non-negotiable. has to be a warm flat and a wet room, ideally. And the ability to vault over railings without splitting my trousers, that would be nice. But certainly if they can guarantee the warmer flat, then I've certainly got some thinking to do. Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. Episode 288 received a very lengthy but useful email from my friend regarding the desktop PC that he's built that he's going to at some point try to get over to me. I've got the monitor, the new monitor here waiting. Can't come soon enough, really, despite it being one more thing that I have to learn how to do because the word issues on this uh, laptop. It's a good job I use final draft writing. I don't know what's going on with this copy of Word. It just started playing up back in the summer. Microsoft, this time they failed me because they're normally very good at helping you resolve issues, but absolutely nothing from them the last couple of months. Lost my thread already. Just a long day. The email, though, very useful. My friend actually said that he should have sent a PowerPoint, whatever, instead. But he sent this email with loads of photographs of what he's built into this PC and how I'm going to need to hook all these cables in. Very good of him, not just to send that PC here that he's built, but just to take the time to explain everything to me, given that I'm the one who's going to have to do it. I still can't find the indoor-only hat, by the way. I took the outdoor-only hat that had been washed and has been standing in for the indoor-only hat the last few weeks, probably now. Hasn't been worn outdoors while it's been understudying the indoor-only hat that's missing. But I had to take it out on this evening's run. I've been to the post office earlier in the day to try and post, uh, sorry, to try and actually bank something, uh, not even bank something, you can't bank something at a post office, it's a post office, I had to pay something in for somebody, but the post office wouldn't accept it, so I have to basically take more time out of my schedule tomorrow to go and run this errand, and on the walk to the post office, I got a sense of, uh, it was fairly cold today, so I thought I'd better take the hat with me. Started raining, so I put it on for the closing lap. I don't think it was necessarily raining enough for me to have to worry about not wearing a hat. I don't think I, you know, even though I had a cold last week, I don't think I would have 
felt worse as a result of getting caught out in the kind of rain that we had this evening in South London. But I thought, well, it's come out with me. I might as well justify bringing it out because now that it's been out, I can't wear it indoors, not in a pandemic. You know, these are different times. So I just put it on for the closing lap. It's a misshapen hat now from so many washes. There's a ruster-like aspect to it. Now that it's been back outdoors today, of course, I can't wear it indoors until it's been washed. Just under 10K tonight, which was a little disappointing because I could have done 10K easily. I did just under 10K, so, but uh, just, you know, being anal, I like to see the 10K. If I'm out to do 10K, I want to see it on the app. Just got out late again. Just can't get out on time to the park and probably I'll have to go back to doing lunchtime runs. It's a shame that I worked out that evening runs are my favourite time. I'm not actually sure that's true because I think that the reason I probably didn't do the evening run during the spring and summer was because I don't like it when the park is, you know, packed, which is why I won't be running on a Sunday again. So I guess that's the reason why I never did the evening run until just the last four or five weeks. Bought a high-vis vest because uh, running at night certainly... As a novice to night running, it's quite hairy. Three pounds I paid for it. Not expecting a great deal of reflecting for that or whatever it does. Whatever it does to keep a runner safe. I don't think you're going to get a lot of neon for three pounds. Three pounds doesn't actually even get you the toe dipper on the Patreon page. As I was finishing up, and I could have gone on to 12k tonight. I really could have done it. But as I say, just night running, I'm finding it dangerous. And when I'm running on the road i'm running in a direction towards the building so i've got traffic coming towards me and when the bus lane is clear i'm running on the road to avoid pedestrians or people walking towards the bus stop walking towards me and it's a very narrow stretch of pavement so i don't trust myself on that road and i've not got anything got nothing i've got nothing reflective on me you know i'm a danger to myself and i'm a danger to vehicles and cyclists I was closing in towards the bus stop where I finished tonight, opposite where I live, and someone from a car or from a flat was blaring out Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind, not a tune that you normally hear blaring out. To this day, I haven't seen Dirty Dancing. I'm not going to either, but I bought the soundtrack back in 87 because of that Bill Medley. Was it Bill Medley, Jennifer Warnes duet, Time of My Life, late 87, and... That Patrick Swayze track, despite the best efforts of Eddie Large to destroy it in a late 80s little and large sketch, it has, I feel, stood the test of time well. So I was just maybe a couple of hundred metres away from the bus stop and I was hearing Patrick Swayze. And that just gave me a bit of extra motivation. I mean, at the moment, the hair is very short. It almost felt like the mullet that I had until when was it? June time, maybe, June, July. It was a moment that would have lended itself well to a mullet, you know, just blowing behind me with Patrick Swayze in my ears. Speaking of hair, I had a self-haircut yesterday. The novelty of that has long since worn off. Had to do it yesterday, I'd aim for Saturday, but this flat is so dim, more so with the scaffolding up, that by 1,500 hours on Saturday, I knew that it wasn't going to be bright enough to cut my hair, so I just thought... Just forget about it, try and relax, and uh, just get uh, just do the hair on the Sunday. I don't think I relaxed on Saturday, though. I think I had a long day at the laptop. I can't remember what I was doing, though. 
everything in the flat is a race against time in terms of the lighting. Things I have to do every day before it just gets too dark to be able to do them. It's simply, well, it's, it's, there's no difference being in the flat to the three times a week attempt to get out to the park on time. I'm always racing against the light, the light vanishing. And this is such a dark flat. Scout's very cold. So I uh, do need a hat indoors. Don't have one tonight. Not until I wash the um, erstwhile understudy indoor only hat. Quite fancy taking a razor blade to the sides and back of the scalp. You know, I've grown it out at the top, but something I've always wanted to do is just have a wet shave on the scalp. Never done that. I mean, I'm just curious about seeing the scalp for the first time. Wouldn't you be? I can't be alone in wanting to see my scalp before this is all over. A breakfast update. I don't think I gave you one on the Patreon show last week, episode 287. And I don't think that I'm going to remember what I've had for breakfast since last Thursday. Of course, it's either going to be toast or crackers. You know my routine. I don't veer from that routine. Let's see if I can remember Friday. Friday... Can you see? I can't even form my words properly. That's how tired I am. 22.01 hours now. Friday was toast. Saturday was crackers. Sunday was toast because I had crackers at night before having some fruit because uh, Sunday lunchtime is the uh, oversized bowl of porridge. And this morning, what did I have this morning? This morning I had toast. So what's that? I think that might be 2-2. All square. There you go. Something I'm keeping an eye on. Watching on eBay, a blue snaggletooth. That is... Such a big thing in the world of Star Wars action figures, though it's not a genuine Blue Snaggletooth. The story of the Blue Snaggletooths is they were originally made in error, and it's a very tall Snaggletooth, bigger than the maroon-coloured Snaggletooth that is the one that actually went on sale. Snaggletooth in Star Wars football, he's the Alderaan midfielder, the, the, the club's record goal scorer, one of the great players of Star Wars football, but he is quite short. He's got the long arms like Frank Costanza, but he is quite short. And I've always fantasized about having the blue snaggletooth because he's much taller. But then I think, well, would he be the same player? There's something about that squat snaggletooth maybe that is behind him being such a unique player, that low center of gravity, the ability to turn opponents and play passes of Either, uh, either foot. So it's not quite a blue snaggletooth, this one, though. What they've done is they've repurposed an original snaggletooth. They've kept the top half. They've painted it blue. The exact blue, whatever blue it is, I don't know. Is there such a thing as a metallic blue? I don't know what I'm talking about. But they've got the color right on the blue snaggletooth. And the blurb is it's a custom-assembled figure made using original parts. So it's got the snaggletooth body, as I said, and the arms. But it's got Greedo's legs finished with blue and silver paint. I know the boots are silver, very long boots and silver. And uh, I am tempted, but it's been repurposed. The legs might not be good enough. So I don't know how you would change the legs on a Star Wars action figure but it might be that they have to be glued. I don't know, in which case they're going to be very stiff and might not be suitable for Star Wars football. I'm not sure how I would convey that to a seller. Greedo in my Star Wars football league, though, he's got very good legs after a slow start, really proving himself with Bespin. My original concern was that he was very loose-limbed. I would have preferred to break in a stiff-limbed 
Greedo, and that did teach me uh, a bit of a lesson when it came to buying on eBay. But uh, he's, uh, he's come on leaps and bounds in the last uh, season. At the moment, it's got 36 watches. It's already going for £8, so that's certainly blown me out of the water already. But uh, it was just interesting to see. A very bleak weekend in terms of well-known people passing away. I'm not normally affected by that. After all, you know, I don't know these people. I've got my own struggles, and these people tend to have lived more comfortable lives. The first one was Des O'Connor, which I know hurt the gin. You know, Des O'Connor's number one fan, and he posted a moving tribute on Twitter to... Um, the ITV king. I do think Des O'Connor was underrated. He could do a bit of everything. And he was also very funny and also not afraid to laugh at himself. So I think, you know, those of us who grew up with Des O'Connor and the chances are even the younger generation grew up with Des O'Connor because he was on our TV almost forever. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I think all the plaudits that have come his way and the obituaries, all the tributes, he absolutely deserved them. The one that affected me was uh, Ray Clements yesterday. Before John Barnes came along, Ray Clements was my favourite Liverpool player. I think partly, well, one, he was Liverpool's goalkeeper. Two, he had a haircut just like my dad, the kind of haircut that Andy the barber, the old Clapham North Greek barber could do. In fact, the only hair that he could do, the problem was that he was still giving out the same haircuts in the 90s. And there was just something about Ray Clements that... I think he was just very hard to dislike. Even if you weren't a Liverpool fan, he was very hard to dislike. And, you know, he'd make a few errors, a few high-profile errors, and you felt for him. You always felt for him because he always came across as a nice guy. And I do remember my dad, when Clements had gone to Spurs, my dad always said that Clements' last couple of years at Liverpool were a bit uh, dodgy and that the move might uh, revive him. And I think in many respects he was right. But again, I remember... You know, one or two Clements errors. Uh, I remember an error against Hungary, I think, in Budapest. England won in the end 3-1. But Hungary, I think, had taken the lead. And, you know, everybody makes errors. And, of course, every footballer makes errors. And goalkeepers are more vulnerable than anyone else. But when Clements made an error because you were always rooting for him, it would just hurt you so much. And you always wanted things to come good for him. He's just my favourite ever keeper. He always will be. And also goalkeepers in my family were a big thing because my mum came from a family of goalkeepers, you know, amateur goalkeepers out there, semi-professional goalkeepers out there in Spain. That carries a bit more kudos than it does here. And also my dad was an amateur goalkeeper. So he was always obsessed with goalkeepers and, you know, Clements and Shilton and Pat Jennings here. You know, my dad coming over in 1970 caught the back end of the Gordon Banks years, but he was a big fan of the goalkeepers. And, uh, you know, Clements was someone that he had a lot of time for as a goalkeeper. So, you know, Ray Clements was just so well known in our flat, our bedsit. And I think that's the thing about growing up at the time we did. And maybe it still goes on now because obviously there's more football on now. Maybe it still works the same way that you see these people all the time. Well, you know, back then we didn't. That's the thing. We'd read about them in the paper and we'd be lucky to catch them on TV once or twice a month, if that. But they were big people in your life. You're growing up, you found your team to support, to get behind. And suddenly you grow up and you're middle-aged and these early heroes of yours start dying off. And sometimes you don't think about it and then sometimes you do. And this one, I don't know. I, I think just because 
just because he was recalled so fondly, just because there was so much love for the guy in my family, even though we didn't know him. It's one of those that stings a bit, you know. I put a clip up on LinkedIn of him making what was my favourite Ray Clements save in the 1981 League Cup final, the first game against West Ham. Put that clip up on LinkedIn. Put it up on the When Shorts Were Shorts Twitter account. And I think the two combined, it's got over a 1,000 views in less than 12 hours, which is uh, extraordinary, but well-deserved, really, because it was just a brilliant piece of goalkeeping. My goalkeeper, my first goalkeeper in car football, Mayflower, that was a red mini that I painted gold, red, and green. Green just for the goalkeeper's top. You know, colour combinations were never a strong point for me, but uh, the goalkeeper was called Ray Clements. It's... Weird that my two worst interviews as a football journalist were both Ray Clements and Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson, I understood because he'd had such a hard time from journalists. Bobby Robson is venerated now. But the fact is that if you go back to the early 80s, all the way through the 80s until 1990, Italian 90, that man was hounded by the press. Worse than Graham Taylor. I've never seen a manager get a tougher time than Bobby Robson when he was manager of England. It was absolutely disgraceful. And I remember it was Euro 2004. He was working for ITV. I'd had to go to a very glossy press conference. I think it might have been on Drury Lane. Do I know Drury Lane? It was near Trafalgar Square. It was around the back of Charing Cross Road. I don't know if that's Drury Lane. Am I just making stuff up now? I don't know. But it was in a hotel. It was very glossy. Bobby Robson was there. There were two things that surprised me was how tall he was, how big he was. You wouldn't have uh, messed around with that guy. But he didn't look happy at all about being there. When there were journalists surrounding him, he just didn't look happy. I remember there was a high-profile journalist next to me. And I think Bobby Robson might have been knighted by then. And he referred to him as Sir Bobby. And I thought, I can't do that. I... I don't care how nice, how great someone is. I'm not bending the knee. I don't have that uh, business in me. I don't care who they are. But I remember seeing how defensive he looked and just thinking, yeah, I understand that. I understand why he doesn't want to be here. I understand why he doesn't want to talk to us. This guy's been through it and uh, is well within his rights to behave like this. Ray Clements, I think I must have just caught him on an off day because he was really standoffish. And I was really thrown by that, and I didn't know how to deal with it, because I hadn't expected it. And I suppose because I actually thought, well, I know this guy. You know, I've known who Ray Clements is since I was three or four years old. Here I am now talking to him all these years later. It's going to go okay. And it certainly didn't go okay. And it was it was disappointing. Maybe if I'd been a bit more experienced at that time, I might have been able to do a bit more to um, bring him out of his uh, shell, possibly. But one of those days where it just makes you think, well, this is what happens when you start getting old. All these people that you idolized as a kid, they're going to die before you if things follow their natural order. It's just a weird one. It's very strange getting your head around that. I remember my dad, you know, he'd be the same when one of the footballers from Spain that he'd loved as a kid would pass away. He'd just tell you all about this guy that he loved as a kid this footballer and I think now I understand finally understand that now I remember Ray Clements leaving for Spurs I 
think, well, I know that it was in 1981, the summer of 81, but I think I remember seeing that story breaking, breaking in those days, meaning in the paper, and it was in the Evening Standard, and I'd gone to meet my mum, who was picking up my sister from the girls' school. I'd gone to a Catholic, uh, Catholic infants, and it was also a primary school, but the boys always had to leave at the age of seven to go to their own primary school and the girls would stay on at the junior school. So my mum was picking up my sister and I don't know where I picked up this paper from, but on the back pages was something about Clements leaving or that he had said he wanted to go. I do remember it was in the evening standard that I saw it and I went to Spain that summer and when I came back, that was it. He was already at Spurs. It was a, it was a strange one. You're listening to Daniel Roy Tyson. Available. Ways to support the show, iTunes reviews, 30 seconds of your time. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, 1607WestEgg, facebook.com forward slash DRT, available FB issue. That's always in my notes. No joy on that. I'm never going to be able to post normally on that. You've got PayPal and coffee.com links on my website, danielruistyson.com. If you want to make a one-off donation from time to time, all the money comes into the show. You can click on either of those links and I'll retransfer you that week's Patreon bonus if you're not already a Patreon supporter. Most importantly, though, the best way, the most direct way to support this work is via the Patreon page. Bonus content every Thursday. It's a Patreon page as furloughed as you can get. Furloughed before any of us even knew what furloughed was. You will not find a better Patreon deal anywhere. Taking the hit on the currency conversions too, that all comes out of what I actually make, which is okay. You know, I'm losing a bit of money there, but uh, I believe in this show. I believe one day it'll have the support of back and it deserves and maybe in the next life, maybe when I do that reincarnation thing I was touching on earlier, maybe I'll just pick things up from there. I won't be expected to start with show one again. I can just pick up around, I don't know, episode 438 maybe. Time to give you this week's uh, Nectar Points update. Let me just shine the light here. Going to have to kill this show soon. 17, uh, let's be consistent with the time there. Come on, David. 22.17, been a long day. So last week's points balance was 379. I think I've accrued points with the various purchases on eBay. The studio equipment was a mixture of eBay, Amazon, and some foreign sites. Um, so 379, that was the starting balance. Bought a four-pinter of semi-skimmed milk put a six pinter from little as well i think at the weekend at one point i was sitting on 22 pints of semi-skimmed and i felt like a king a tin of uh, sainsbury's own beans bought some yogurt some fabric conditioner five single oranges this time been enjoying my oranges that was one pound fifty two jars of pasta sauce one pound ten and uh, two loose baking potatoes 87p more than i'd hoped to pay for Last week, I went for the little meat feast for my calzone conversion again. I got three thin and crispy spicy chicken pizzas in the freezer. Can't actually open the freezer properly, so I think that's played a part in my uh, just opting for the cheaper little pizza. But I quite like it. Just takes 11 minutes. Gas marks seven. Fold over is never brilliant on those, but it's a decent pizza. It's certainly uh, at the moment pushing the thin and crispy spicy chicken pizza for uh, the first choice spot i earned eight points new points balance 387 points are worth 193 can i get to the magic 
500 mark before Christmas. It's doable. I think it's doable. It will be tight, but it's doable. And that is it. That is the end of this week's regular show. Patreon listeners, you get your weekly bonus edition on Thursday. If you want to join those patrons, sign up at patreon.com forward slash DRT available. Thank you all for listening. If you're not joining us on Thursday, I'm back next Monday. Get those shoulders back. Keep on walking towards the sun. Keep washing those hands. With Daniel Ruiz Tyson, and this start of the week, I have been available.